Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best, and our new motto is to be determined. Yeah, we're going to leave unrest is best behind in 2020. We're going to keep it in the quarantine. And uh, next year will be something about uh, techno raves and orgies, and we can get back to that life again that we all enjoyed before the pandemic, before we were stuck inside talking on our laptops. Oh my god. And so that'll probably be the end of podcasting, so we probably won't need a new motto, because <laughs> we'll all be living yeah, I... our lives to the fullest. I guess we'll see. Or, you know, conversely, we're all going to just turn into grown-ups, and then getting enough rest will be the thing that is best. <laughs> No, nothing like a good night's sleep. Yeah, I, I, I like that people are are predicting that once everyone's vaccinated, it'll just we'll just go back to like conspicuous consumption rave society. And you know, we might um, that might come back for a couple of months before the next catastrophe. And I think uh, we have the perfect guest to tell us what that will be. That's right. So we're very excited today to be speaking with Mike Davis. Uh, he's a writer, activist urban theorist and Marxist historian. Um, He's the author of many books, including City of Courts, Prisoners of the American Dream, and Planet of Slums, and his investigations of political economy from his native state of California to the global capitalist system as a whole have been a major, major contribution to the field. And this is someone who is incredibly knowledgeable about many of the major things to review this year. He wrote a uh he's written extensively on the the wildfires about how they work in terms of um the environmental uh contrib- the, the various in- contributions to why there are such increasingly bad wildfires he wrote about global pandemics 10 years ago talking about how the bird flu would likely become a pandemic and it didn't but uh a another coronavirus did uh last year and he wrote a really excellent uh, analysis of the election. Um, so we're going to try to cover all that territory and probably some other stuff. Hell yeah. And we're going to try to make it a little bit shorter than the three-part decade in review episode we did last year. But, uh, you know, a lot of things happened in 2020. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Mike, <laughs> professor... just introduced and explained why uh, we're so excited to be talking to him right now um, about 2020 and all the things that happened in this year of our Lord. So thank you so much for being here with us, Mike, as you just told us we could call you. (laughs) So yeah, um, we didn't necessarily know this beforehand, but uh, 2020 was a year when a lot of chickens came home to a lot of roosts. Um, and a lot of this was stuff that uh, you, Mike, had been warning us about for many years from the California wildfires that destroyed uh, countless homes to the global pandemic to the financial crisis in which we now find ourselves. So um, on a scale from one to 10, how much pleasure do you take in being right about this stuff? <laughs> Do you hate to say I told you so? I um, I take zero pleasure. I I tend to write about things that worry me or scare me. And I'm not trying to earn 
credentials out of the Old Testament for prophecy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of a joke question because, like, what kind of a monster would be happy to be right about any of this horrible shit? Um, no, so- I mean, this, this is a catastrophic year for working people in the United States. It, it really is a year of just criminal activities, both in the corporate sector and in Washington. It's not just the loss of 320,000 lives, but it's the fact that this occurs at the end of a boom in which wages fail to advance at all, in which incredible numbers of people are are marginalized. Unemployment statistics are almost meaningless today because they don't count the people who, in fact, aren't searching for jobs because there aren't any uh, jobs. So it's like, in a way, people went to bed one night in March, and it was 2020, they woke up the next morning and it was 1932 again. Uh, well, we wanted to, to start taking this, uh, this catastrophic year piece by piece. And one of the first catastrophes of this year was the, uh, the fires in Australia were you know, a very ominous thing that happened the first week of January, 2020. And then of course they eventually came home to roost, like Jamie said, and to California, which was was very expected. And you wrote about the ecological backgrounds uh, of the of the wildfires in a way that I, I hadn't really seen discussed before, both the reason why the wildfires are getting worse every year and basically how it's a negative feedback loop. Extreme heat, as Australia is now experiencing every year, and California is experiencing, including in areas forested areas and normally cooler parts of California interacts with the spread of invasive plants, particularly species of plants called bromes, uh, which are uh, alien grasses. And fire promotes their spread. They in turn burn at very hot temperatures and introduce fire into ecosystems Uh, in which fire is infrequent or totally excluded. And the example I uh, invoked a lot is a fire that occurred in the eastern Mojave Desert in the greatest Joshua tree forest on earth. Joshua trees are yuccas that uh, can live for hundreds and hundreds of years and grow 40, 45 uh, feet tall. And uh, this area of Joshua trees it's just an incredible uh, site. There's really nothing like it. And uh, Joshua trees are not fire adapted. Uh, the landscape hardly ever burns, and certainly not large fires. But the spread of invasive grasses introduced fire this year and killed uh, 1.2 million uh, Joshua trees, destroyed this old growth, unique uh, forest. And they won't grow back. We're talking about uh, the loss of a of a invaluable iconic uh, landscape, and that's what we've now seen in fires, that they're bringing about irreversible changes because of their interaction uh, with alien uh, species of, of 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 plants that act as star 
uh, fire starters, but also the endless expansion of housing, particularly high-end housing into wilderness areas or wild areas with great natural amenities, forests, lakes, mountain views, and, and, and the like, uh, is ensuring that we'll see an acceleration of this conversion of traditional ecosystems into new vegetation uh, uh, communities. Essentially what will be happening, and this is, uh, there's, I think, a, a strong consensus amongst climate scientists about this, is that Southern California, Southwest, will grow more desert-like in its vegetation. Mediterranean brush, chaparral and the like, will begin to replace forests further, uh, further north. And all this is happening faster than uh, tree and shrub species can adapt to it. Uh, the earth is changing in radical and irreversible ways, which we contribute to directly, not only by being the cause of global warming, but by the constant building uh, and uh, suburbanization, exurbanization, actually, of wildland areas. The majority of housing in California, new housing, over the last generation has been built in areas of what are officially called very high or extreme high fire risk uh, areas. It's simply crazy. And it, it's created a huge new dangers for firefighters because fighting wildfire really is a, a war maneuver. You know, you set backfires, you draw lines, but you have to be able to retreat and move around, attack fire from the edges. Now the expectation is that everybody's McMansion on, on a hilltop in the middle of the forest will be saved by firefighters. And that's increasing the rates of injury or death uh, amongst firefighters. To condense all this into a single sentence, we're losing California, invaluable iconic parts of, of California. And that's happening around the world, uh, particularly in the latitude zones of the uh, uh, traditional Mediterranean landscapes or semi-desert landscapes. And uh, what was the name of the article you wrote? Um, Let the Malibu case, Burn? The case for letting Malibu burn. Right, right. And I think the, the reaction at the time was that you were a crank, that these fires would, would never happen again. Um, so it's pretty clear that we are living within the, the catastrophe that, that some had seen coming. And uh, for that reason, I was really interested in this, this idea of nature too, that you, you, you wrote about in your piece uh, in The Nation about, uh, I think it, it was uh, after the, the firebombing of, of Dresden or, or, or of Hamburg, was it? Um, the, uh, the ecology of that region was so altered that they referred to it as uh, basically a new ecology, nature too. So uh, even though that's a kind of a, a grim representation of, of what the world is looking like these days, it, it makes me think that maybe, you know, it, it's not like we're, we're seeing the destruction of all nature, we're seeing it transform into something else. Um, obviously, we're losing the, the, these beautiful 
Joshua trees and historic neighborhoods and such. But what what's your thought about like how we can inhabit this new nature? If we are in this negative feedback loop that's transforming things, do you, do you see us being able to live and like find some kind of stability within it? Or is this something we need to be constantly pushing back against? The problem is that slow changes in vegetation and uh, animal habitats give time for species to move and to adapt. This is happening so much faster than most plants and most animals in the, the habitat can move or adjust to new climates and new uh, events like fire. Second nature was an idea that evolved around the studies that were done in the rubble of Berlin um, after the Second World War. And according to the reigning uh, ecological ideas of, 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 of the time, uh, disturbance in landscape would lead to uh, short-term and very dramatic changes, but the landscape would restore itself. That is the dominant plant communities would return. In California, the natural fire cycle, uh, you want to call it natural, but the, the fire cycle has been that the plants are all adapted. They evolve with fire and probably with human fire. And actually things like chaparral, the, the brush that covers the foothills of Southern California um, require fire to reproduce, become sterile, they need to burn. And one of the big problems has been the absence of burning. In other words, by preventing fire, you create huge areas of old vegetation. And when that's dried, and when the annual Santa Ana winds blow, you have the components of firestorms larger than anything that was previously seen. But the whole idea is that eventually the, the natural systems would reestablish itself. Now the importance of the Berlin experiments and the careful studies were done is that everybody expected that the original landscape, the Pomeranian uh, mixed forest, would return uh, to Berlin, but it didn't. Instead, alien and uh, plants escaped exotic, colonized the landscape. And research shows that the plants that, uh, that the colonizing plants tended to evolve in places like uh, terminal rains of ice sheets in the, in, in, uh, the Pleistocene. They're incredibly tough uh, plants that thrived on the, the, the complete change in the, the soil of the city as millions of tons of brick debris and so on uh, were ground in. And this raised some real specters. First of all, in terms of what nuclear warfare might do uh, uh, to nature and creating a, a second nature. But now we're seeing uh, a transition to a far more impoverished nature 
with less, less complexity, complexity, less diversity of species, both in terms of plants and, uh, uh, and animals. We're seeing a kind of popperate uh, ecology merging in the wake of the interaction between um, human practices and uh, a warming, uh, you know, a warming climate. Uh, generalists, that is, plants and animals, they can make a living in a variety of different ways, tend to uh, often flourish in the wake of catastrophe or dramatic change in, uh, uh, in climate. But all the specialized species that have grown up in more or less stable ecosystems over the, the millennia, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of years, you know, are far more fragile than realized. So you're faced across the world with this phenomena of irreversible uh, uh, change. And it's occurring fast enough that we, in our own lifetime, can see the disappearance of what, um, at least in California, has always been celebrated as unique beauty and grandeur of, of the state. And we're losing parts of it very rapidly. And that includes the southern part of the coastal redwood belt uh, as well, west of Silicon Valley in the uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, unclear with the redwoods there. Uh, we established themselves after the big fires of the last, uh, you know, three years. I feel like you go over a lot of the factors um, that go into this uh, really well in your writing, because uh, a lot of people think, oh, this is just natural. There's fires. It's fine. It's part of the life cycle. But uh, you do a really good job explaining why this is something new and very distressing that's happening in the world. And you go over all of the factors, all of the, all of the steps that we need to take in order to um, fix this problem for real, including, um, you know, a massive public investment in, um, in, in dealing with this ecology. Um, and, you know, perhaps most dauntingly, the abandonment of development on what is now very valuable land, uh, despite its extreme vulnerability. And uh, I feel like we're coming to uh, a theme that's maybe going to be present throughout this episode, which is um, I just don't see these reforms taking place within the capitalist system. So uh, sorry, everyone, if this episode's a downer, but um, I hope that we can use it for something positive and we're going to get a little more positive at the end. But um, I wanted to shift into talking about the pandemic because um, I think all these things are related on some level. So in your recent piece um, for LitHub, you write about all of the developmental factors that go into creating these kinds of modern plagues and conclude, um, quote, permanent bioprotection against new plagues accordingly would require more than vaccines. It would need the suppression of these structures of disease emergence through revolutionary reforms in agriculture and urban living that no large capitalist or state capitalist country would ever willingly undertake. So um, can we unpack that a bit? Um, why is global capitalism or even state capitalism, like they arguably have in China, uh, so inadequate to the task at hand? And is the best that we can hope for 
uh, kind of a competent state bureaucracy that will effectively control these outbreaks once they occur? Well, I mean, um, it's useful to employ Rob Wallace's uh, triad and trying to tripod of uh, causalities here. One is the corporate logging and destruction of, of rainforest. Some places it is poor people clearing, clearing land in, in desperate short-term economic strategies. But the big forces here are corporate, corporate logging and uh, the clearance of rainforest, uh, mainly to, to raise beef uh, for American hamburgers. And in the book I wrote about avian flu that's been republished now with a, uh, a long introduction about coronavirus, I cite uh, a study which I found uh, almost spectacular in the way it draws connections. And it has to do with the crisis of fishing in the Gulf of Guinea. Now, West Africa is the fastest urbanizing uh, part of the earth, the youngest population, and the most rapid growth of, of slums with hideous sanitation uh, conditions for the most part. Traditionally, West Africans have gotten their protein from fish and a community of several million fishermen strung out from uh, Senegal to uh, uh, the Congo. But what happened 20 or 30 years ago is that factory fleets began showing up off the coast of West Africa, and they literally vacuumed up the protein in the sea. Something like half of the fish mass was um, depleted. And so this, by the way, was not usually fish for human consumption, but it was turned into feed for things like chickens and cattle and so on. This raised the price of fish in the coastal cities. Now at the same time, the big logging companies, multinational logging companies in countries like uh, Gabon and Cameroons, other parts of, of, of West Africa, were clearing rainforests. But to reduce the labor costs of the logging crews and enhance the profits, they hired commercial hunters and they'd go out and kill anything in sight. There's something like 60 different species from uh, snakes to, to primates uh, that were killed. And uh, this is so-called uh, bushmeat and served you know, to, to the logging crews. But as the price of fish increased in the, the cities and people were starved for protein, bushmeat grew into a separate and autonomous industry and began supplying the cities. So you had all the elements here, the destruction of the rainforest, the overfishing, rapid urban growth and displacement of people from the countryside, slums which maximize conditions for disease uh, transmission. And this is the route that Ebola uh, followed and other diseases. HIV probably uh, has a, a similar origin because in on one hand, you're 
you're you're you're knocking down the the barriers between the truly wild and uh, uh, the urbans penetrating into reservoirs, animal reservoirs of viruses that humans that had little previous contact with. And of course, once an outbreak occurs like Ebola, then it can be transmitted at the speed of modern uh, society, which means literally uh, overnight, uh, as we saw with another emergent virus, uh, severe acute respiratory uh, syndrome, SARS, which emerged in China. And the first case was a guy in a hotel at the airport. And within 36 hours, it was in seven different countries. And of course, we've seen how rapidly coronavirus spreads and how unstoppable it's, uh, uh, it's become. But you put all the ingredients here, mix them together, and then add finally the element that Rob Wallace has written so much about, which is factory production, poultry, and uh, uh, meat which creates these immense populations of birds or pigs, which are then the crucibles for the rapid evolution and mutation of viruses like avian flu, for instance. So just as in the case with climate change, the natural factors here are reservoirs of disease that we traditionally have been protected because the rainforests have remained uh, intact. But with their destruction, we've unleashed uh, not just a pandemic or two, but a whole age of pandemics. There's two avian flus now circulating, novel avian flus now circulating, producing disaster in the global poultry industry. And on occasion, both have jumped uh, to human beings. There are not too many mutations away from becoming easily transmissible, in which case you'd have an avian flu pandemic that could be far more deadly than the, the current pandemic. For everyone who's sounded the alarm about this, obviously it, it largely went unheeded. We saw when Trump dismantled the pandemic task force. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it seems like even if that task force did exist and if you know, if the uh, the federal government was, uh, you know, uh, see, uh, expecting this to some degree, I wonder how different things would have really been. And there's this idea that maybe if Hillary Clinton had won, the pandemic wouldn't have come here or uh, not so many people would have died. Um, do, do you think that that's the case? Do you think that Trump has made this uniquely bad? And, and generally speaking, uh, how do you see the, this kind of culture war politics of, of lockdowns and mask wearing and, and vaccines and such uh, relating to the, the reality of the pandemic and the public health crisis? Well, pandemic in this country, as you recall, grew exponentially in March from, you know, just a handful of cases at the beginning of the month over a million cases by the end of the, uh, the month. In April, uh, some of the Democrats called for uh, a commission to investigate how this country lost control when even poor countries, Vietnam, for instance, poor countries in East Asia had managed to, to control and contain the pandemic. 
which remains true uh, today, despite its you know episodic re reappearance. But up until the end of April, you might say that this could be laid at the door, this simple incompetence and uh, lack of any kind of uh, understanding of science on the part of the Trump administration. But by the summer, or by the end of spring in May, when uh, Trump unleashed his armies of Tea Party-like uh, patriots with guns, protests and lockdowns and refusing to wear masks, the administration became a, the crucial vector in the spread of the disease and in the deaths that followed. Almost 100,000 Americans died in uh, nursing homes. I publish, I don't publish, I circulate a little digest of news every day to a couple of hundred people. I, I scour the scientific press for articles about uh, the pandemic. And in the very first uh, issue of, of my little digest in March, I printed a discussion with uh, a letter, an email that I got from a friend who's, <coughs> excuse me, a union organizer in Seattle who represents uh, nursing home uh, uh, workers. And he represents the nursing home that was the initial cluster, major cluster of the outbreak. And he described exactly what would happen. He said, nobody's paying any attention to the fact that people are so underpaid in this industry and lack training and lack protective gear. And they work often uh, two jobs in two different nursing homes. This will spread like wildfire. And this is an absolutely accurate forecast of what happened. Here we are now, we're nine months later, and there's still a national shortage of protective gear. Elderly people or sick people in nursing homes are still dying in mass. I'm speaking from San Diego and in one of the satellite communities of, of San Diego, there's a nursing home in which over 90% of both the staff and the residents have now tested positive for coronavirus and are dying. In California, uh, the need for hospital, uh, more intensive care units was clear from the very beginning. Everybody forecasts what the second wave would be like and why it would be so much more deadly. But nothing was done to increase uh, uh, capacity. In China, during the initial outbreak in Wuhan, they built a thousand bed hospital in two weeks. You know, a sophisticated field hospital. They just pulled out the stops uh, and did it. So I guess what I'm saying is that the Trump administration became truly criminal from at least May onward, doing everything it can could to prevent the adoption of, you know, the basic common sense strategies, for instance, 
you know, mass wearing. And in fact, doing as the Conservative Party in Britain did, which was embracing a herd immunity strategy, which involves getting as many people as sick as possible to create the herd immunity, um, which I argued in one piece was a virtually neo-Nazi strategy and its implications. But finally, to return to your initial point, would a Clinton administration have prevented all this? Well, it probably would have done a better job. It would not have dismantled the viral emergence surveillance network that the US had set up. It wouldn't have uh, abolished the pandemic unit working within the National Security Council. It would have continued the uh, development which had been started in the Obama administration of new uh, mass production technology for N95 masks. There a whole list of, of things. Uh, the Clinton administration, for instance, would have uh, uh, established minimum standards through OSHA of uh, caretakers to patients in long-term nursing uh, facilities. But still, we would be facing um, an incredible number of, of, of deaths and, and disruption because the Obama administration though, was very conscious of the threat of pandemics and responded very aggressively to Ebola in West Africa never restored the public health jobs provided or raised the funding to a public health infrastructure that was half destroyed by the 2008 recession. 60,000 local public health workers, and I'm not talking about hospital workers, I'm talking about the public health people that work on a county or city level, 60,000 jobs were eliminated in an already understaffed system and were never uh, you know, restored. Um, the long-term erosion of public health and particularly public health facilities and resources in areas like poor black cities of, of, of the South, rural areas in Native America would have ensured that you still have an unacceptable number of, of deaths, looking at it from the global scale, of course, what we see is the most hideous kind of uh, viral nationalism, vaccine nationalism. And we now know, or are told virtually every day, that many of the larger and poor countries in the world, Nigeria, for instance, they probably won't see a vaccine for another couple of years, maybe not until 2024. Yes. So you have this huge contradiction between, on one hand, the fact that the international research and scientific community has pulled together in a spectacular and unprecedented way, setting aside copyrights and in, in, in patents to share research. You can go on Google Scholar and all the medical journals, everything about uh, coronavirus, it's all there for, uh, for free. So you've, you've, you've seen a public commons 
working at a very high, high level, a very admirable level. On the other hand, in terms of uh, national policy, it's totally conformed to, to nationalism. An outstanding example of that was the fact that the European Union, now in the European Union, countries uh, are responsible for their own uh, uh, health sectors. But for disasters, including pandemics, there is a, a protocol, a statutory protocol that countries, affected countries can call on their sister countries for uh, aid and support. Italy, which was the major epicenter in Europe in the early part of the pandemic, did that. And the response was the French sealed the border and prohibited the, uh, the export of any medical supplies. So did the other EU nations. The only people who responded to Italy were the Cubans who sent doctors. And of course the Cubans who are everywhere uh, in the world, always on the front lines. And China sent plane loads of uh, technicians and, and, and medical supplies. We've seen international cooperation in terms of aid and resources. Totally, uh, uh, totally allocated on the most nationalistic basis and often with the most nationalistic or even racist, uh, uh, you know, rhetoric to, to support that course of possibility. And people who think that the storm is passing, in some respects, it hadn't yet developed fully in poor parts of, of the world. The toll in Africa could become much, much greater, particularly if vaccines are unavailable for the next two or even three years. Yeah, let's stay on this for another minute or two because it's so fucking terrible and we are all thinking about it 24-7. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, you talked a little bit about how the Trump administration was so uniquely, uniquely bad about pandemic control, you know, after the previous administrations, including the Clinton administration, the Bush two administration and the Obama administration, you know, more or less maintained these agencies. Um, I'm just wondering, like, is there a Marxist explanation for why uh, the Trump administration dismantled these agencies so actively and counterproductively? Like, it, it's it's hard for me to figure out like what uh, the what the the connection is to capital here because I feel like capital would want to avoid a uh, an economic crisis sparked by a pandemic if it possibly could, right? Well, I mean, the real question then is. Um... How does capital think? And of course, to think in a general sense, in a strategic sense, requires specific conditions uh, of organization. If you want an example of big capital in the United States acting in a coherent and strategic way, you go back to something like the Business Roundtable, which led the corporate offensive against national union bargaining and against unions. Uh, and helped usher in the, uh, the Reagan period. There you had united the biggest corporations in the country with a kind of common purpose. That doesn't exist anymore for uh, a variety of reasons. So who would think, you know, where is the mind of capital as a whole? 
And what the Trump administration has done is serve special interests of capital, not general interest of, of, of capital. One of its chief priorities was non-interference with private uh, uh, markets. Uh, so for instance, uh, the fact that they scarcely invoked at all the National Defense Production Act for the manufacture of personal protective equipment. The fact that the insurance industry uh, has been turned loose in, in, in the most wild fashion because they're not treating other ailments and because the collateral damage of the pandemic, that is people who die because they weren't able to go to the hospital or get treatment because of the pandemic. The number of people who die from that, I believe will be much greater actually than those who directly die from uh, uh, coronavirus. But the insurance industries made enormous uh, profits. And as we know, the very, very wealthiest people in America uh, have earned more than a trillion dollars in the course of pandemic. Uh, and no one, to my knowledge, and I've written about this on several occasions, has referred to the precedent of excess profits tax that were imposed in the First and Second World War and in Korean War by Democratic uh, presidents. Now, we, you know, we, we let Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, basically rape the country and, and, and keep uh, everything uh, uh, that he gets. But the peculiarity of the period is that the peak organization of American capital, and this is in part because so much of the power of big industrial corporations has faded. And the financial sector has you know, gained so much more power that the financial sector looks at the real economy is simply, uh, you know, a balance sheet. They don't care if uh, steel's produced in Youngstown or tires in, uh, you know, Akron. They're only concerned about maximum short-term returns to shareholders and managerial uh, 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 bonuses, and so you have a political system in which, although big financial corporations give about equally to Republicans or Democrats, and the Republican Party, you see the enormous power that's been gained by these really kind of marginal sectors of, of capital, regional, local capital, what my friend Sam Farber called the lumpen billionaire class. And that's something I've written about in uh, uh, specific detail. Uh, nursing homes are an excellent example since they are largely controlled by private equity or uh, Southern billionaires who use it to milk Medicaid and Medicare, which pays for the most expenses in the uh, long-term care industry. They're pirates, they're crooks. And uh, they bear a huge liability for uh, uh, all the people uh, uh, who died. But the fact is that even if you abstract 
from the events of the last year. You know, the Trump administration, neoliberal policies in the Democratic Party have accepted and in some cases initiated these very dramatic and large-scale declines in public employment, in funding for public uh, healthcare. And I guess for me, and I think probably a lot of other militants out there, what was really disastrous was to see the Sanders campaign and these negotiations that were conducted after his concession in March, where they accepted less than universal health care, Medicare for all, okay? The committee that met, the commission that, uh, that met, accepted, uh, uh, agreed to go along with, uh, you know, Biden's, uh, you know, milk toast uh, public auction at a time when uh, every banner in the country should have been emblazed with uh, Medicaid, Medicare for all right now. And uh, this was something that, that uh, you know, uh, was a self-defeat of, of, of the American West. So I guess I'm saying you look here and this two concentric circles. The larger one is austerity, uh, deregulation, neoliberal policies, the uh, crisis, fiscal crisis of local and state governments. And then within this, there's this particular and highly criminal actions of the Trump administration and of the Republican party, driven by the fact that they're doling out favors and public resources to specific groups of capital. I mean, in the Senate, the whole debate about relief has been held up by the fact that Connell refuses to agree to anything unless the Democrats accept a kind of unlimited exemption from any of hospitals and insurers and so on, uh, long-term care facilities unless they're relieved of, of any liability, civil or criminal, for what's been done. And this is a period of great crimes and privateering. And this is the real bottom line for the Republicans, at least the, uh, the Republicans in the Senate. They're serving the insurance industry and there's other parts of the private uh, healthcare sector with little thought to particularly the low wage workers uh, and the elderly people who are the immediate victims of all this. Yeah, I think it is really important to um, tease out like the different fractions of capital and the competing interests, as you said. Um, and one more depressing thing is what happens when we have uh, capital fractured and divided against itself? Um, usually nothing good. Nothing good for the workers of the world. Um, but um, you know what? I'm gonna maybe make this uh, a little more, a little more cheerful and talk about something that erupted this year, uh, the movement for black lives, which was the biggest protest movement in US history, I believe. Um, there were demonstrations in every single state 
um, I guess we're calling it the George Floyd uprising, uprising for black lives, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, but and, and I was very inspired to see that. And I think uh, we all everyone here at the Antifada went to some of the protests and participated. Um, but aside from some cuts to local police budgets, um, we have yet to see that intense uh, energy and resistance translate into real political power. And not only that, but the Democratic Party is openly contemptuous of its central demand to defund the police, you know, up to and including Barack Obama has said, you know, you guys need to simmer down. So uh, I guess my question is twofold, um, which is what would need to happen for this movement to exert a substantial pressure over policy? And how do we see this movement, this movement for black lives um, and against the police uh, fitting into the fight against capitalism more broadly? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement is achieved, is moved mountains. There's, you know, you can't um, come to any other conclusion than it's had an extraordinary successes, even if it hasn't uh, transformed uh, uh, policing because it's brought millions of people into the understanding of the need to undertake active solidarity with people of color and the recognition of the systemic violence practiced by uh, all kinds of, of, of police in, in the United States. When the Sanders campaign ended in March, there was a real possibility of an incredible deflation of activism and hope on the part of the hundreds of thousands of people who the campaign had mobilized at one time or another. Black Lives Matter saved that activism and commitment. It recycled it. Uh, that in itself was something uh, of a social miracle. But I think to far too great extent, we begin to measure things by legislative or electoral uh, uh, results. What's more important is keeping people mobilized and involved in both concrete local struggles and national movements. So clearly we're at a crossroads right now. Uh, Black Lives Matter to some extent seems to, I wouldn't say disintegrate, that's not what's happening, but it's having uh, its own uh, internal problems. Some people would say on the left, well, what we need is a far broader class-based movement and looks at fights on all kinds of issues. Well, I wouldn't support that if it meant losing the focus, the intense focus the BLM has placed on uh, uh, police violence. But two things need, uh, obviously need to be done. First is to expand the definition of the uh, repression and official violence to include the entire legal system, the district attorneys, prosecutors, the courts, 
the hundreds and probably thousands of enhancements and new criminal uh, penalties have been adopted over the last uh, uh, 20 years with the Clinton administration and even the Obama administration responsible for an awful lot of that. So I think there needs to be a, a deeper analysis of who we're specifically fighting uh, against. The racist cop who gets caught abusing uh, a black motorist in a traffic stop, okay, that'll be on the screen. But the district attorneys who work through plea bargaining and end up putting thousands of, of people who, if they had the resources, might have gone to trial and proved their innocence in prison. That tends to go unnoticed. The whole system of life imprisonment uh, in this country. You know, we're concerned about the death penalty, but life imprisonment or long-term, more than 20 years sentences are another form of death, of, of, of social death. So I think we must hope that we can enlarge the diff, uh, in, in, enlarge the um, the target uh, that we're protesting against, and look at how the police are embedded. Really, is an almost secondary role within this larger system of judicial oppression and racism. The second thing is that without surrendering the, the focus on Black Lives Matter, it should also be Latino lives matter, transgender lives matter, poor white lives matter. I think there's a, a, a great basis here for creating a series of uh, important alliances but to counterpose a general class-based movement or political organization to Black Lives Matter would in a way be a real betrayal of everything that's been done and built uh, this year. But we need to broaden the constituency and deepen the analysis. Say we, I'm just an old white guy. And, you know. <laughs> well, I think everybody who's participated in the movement this year agrees with that to some extent um, and hopefully has noticed the progression from the movement for Black Lives in, in 2014, 2015 to today. And I think a lot of that development, that political development has been precisely what you're describing, moving from a, a critique of police behavior or uh, de demanding uh, more accountability from the police uh, then to a, a fuller abolitionist uh, stance today, uh, and abolition not in terms of just getting rid of individual police departments, but also getting rid of the carceral state, prisons, you know, d defunding the police as a as an intermediary measure or something like this. It's it hasn't reached a fully uh, coherent uh, policy position or, uh, or 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 militant stance yet. But I think abolitionism is increasingly becoming the logic of why of what people wanna see when they protest the police. And uh, I wanna bring that back to something that you said in your, your recent New Left review piece about the elections. You mentioned that you, you believe that uh, some of the places where Biden did well 
were places where there was a lot of mobilization uh, against ICE in Arizona, for instance, or um, uh, against the police in, in Minneapolis. Um, and that's a bit of counterintuitive to me because I do think that those movements by and large have been very critical of the Democratic Party and its complicity in expanding the carceral state. So how is it that Democrats get votes uh, in, in places where the movements are so active? And how do these movements uh, pressure the Democratic Party or, or make it irrelevant? Well, uh, two of my four children are still in high school. I'm a very geriatric father. And I've been arguing with them all year uh, about voting for the Democratic candidate. They're not old enough to vote yet, but they would not vote for Biden under any condition whatsoever, any Democrat. I felt a bit like a Menshevik trying to, <laughs> trying to convince a bunch of Bolsheviks that, you know, oh, let's support Terensky a little longer or something. But the truth is, of course, that we had to vote uh, for the Democrats. It's better if you're in a position to choose your enemy you should do so, but do so without the slightest um, uh, false belief or you know, unfounded hopes about what the Democrats will be in power because we're seeing continuation of what the Democrats have been since the, the Clinton years. And we've seen the sweeping attacks on, on progressives and isolation of progressives uh, and uh, with the return of, you know, ancient Obama staffers and, you know, even Clintons, the disastrous continuity in the Democratic Party uh, is evident. I think that, I think that people understood uh, this principle and they worked their asses off to get rid of, 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 of Trump. But we also have to do some internal accounting amongst ourselves, particularly those of us who were involved in the Sanders campaign, because it's always presented as, well, it's this dual track, it's inside outside. We're building a movement to elect candidates, we're electing candidates to build a movement in workplaces in the streets. Well, as you know, many, many cynical, because they're so experienced leftists pointed out at the time, it never works that way. And it didn't. That after the concession in March, both Sanders and Elizabeth Warren continued to come out with, you know, great ideas and policies and, you know, side with the workers and uh, the people. But then what did they ask you to do? Sign a petition, send money to some Democratic uh, candidate. We saw that the end of the day was most of all an electoral campaign, not inside, outside, far too inside. And it's time that we really need to uh, break with that and not evaluate everything in terms of an electoral calculus that's so completely weighted against popular movements and the left. Before we get back to the, uh, the election, uh, the 2020 election, your, your New Left Review piece, 
You also released a book this year called Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. And I was just wondering, having uh, researched and written so much about uh, LA in the 60s, and, and I, I presume there's there's quite a bit about the Watts riots of 65 in there, what, what, what kind of uh, similarities and differences do you see between the, the rioting and looting uh, this year in Los Angeles and, and what was going on in the, the mid-60s in Los Angeles? Well, in the book, we argued that the Watts Rebellion was not only inevitable, it was necessary. It was absolutely the right thing to do. Maybe not some of the looting. You know, any form of popular uprising will have its own excesses of one kind or another. Basically, it was a rebellion of a whole generation of young Black people against an intolerable uh, situation, focused in the first place on the, uh, the LAPD, on an exploitive small businesses as a kind of uh, second target. And it had enormous consequences in terms for a period of at least about five years of, of unity and tremendous creativity and hope and energy uh, in Black Los Angeles, later joined by uh, Chicano movements with their own, their own uprisings. One problem of the period of is we tended to end up, everything tended to be reduced to defending ourselves. And I'm talking about all the movements of the 60s, which were in a way unified by the brutality of the LAPD. But at the same time, it ended up sucking up all the resources in order to defend people, um, to resist uh, increasing police violence and frame-ups. I really did not get back to attacking the, the people who actually control the politics and economy of, of Los Angeles, corporate power, savings and loan companies, uh, which were built upon segregated, segregating suburbia, banks, uh, discriminatory local uh, employers, government institutions like a school system uh, that was self-segregated in a way that uh, was very reminiscent of any uh, southern city or state. In other words, repression forces into a defensive track and lost the frontal struggle against the real economic and political institutions of uh, capitalism, of who runs uh, LA? And this is a very difficult question because it's, you know, it's hard to say, well, what would you have done differently at the time? You know, Panthers are being, you know, being murdered, kids are being expelled from uh, uh, school, there are all these conspiracy indictments. How could you not uh, resist that? And that is not an easy question to answer. The left that has to emerge in the next few years, the, the left that has to reorganize itself and create uh, new horizons and strategic understandings must be one that recognizes that 
in this generation, we've only begun to see, you've only begun to see uh, the small application of state power to crush movements. We know, of course, the technology is now beyond 1984 and its capacities to surveil. And the legal system is armed with everything it needs uh, to repress people. Because we're entering a period of really primal and desperate class and social struggles that we met with much greater levels of repression. And I'm talking about the Democrats in, in Congress as well. We wrote the book, John Wiener and I, not because we were so enthralled with, you know, when we were 20 years old back in 1965, but because so many of the issues that people are fighting about, young people are fighting about in Los Angeles today, the same issues that existed in the 60s. So we'd hope to create a useful tool for activists to think historically about what happened then and what lessons might be uh, valuable today. And a chief warning was this fact of, you know, how do you avoid having, in a sense, your struggles hijacked by uh, repression and uh, losing uh, losing uh, focus. Yeah, how do we? <laughs> Million dollar question, right? Well, you, one thing that obviously we need to do is that one of the achievements of the 60s left, or rather the achievement of a whole generation of radical young lawyers was created, you know, uh, an impressive network of, of legal uh, defense. And much of that is atrophied or doesn't exist today. It needs to be recreated, not because the courtrooms are the principal uh, uh, terrain of struggle, but because otherwise, with uh, few resources to resist, it, it, you know, it isn't so just so much that they come and kill you or they put you in prison for 20 years, it's they come and call you to a grand jury hearing. And if you refuse, give you immunity and you refuse to talk about your, you know, your friends or comrades, they can hold you in jail forever. This happened all the time. Yeah, that Eddie happened to a friend of ours, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we've seen, we've seen this now, uh, this year. Where I live, San Diego, is an extraordinary example. They reheated a statute that was passed during the First World War, during the persecution of the IWW and the, and the Socialist Party. The crime is uh, the distribution of seditious literature. And they were going around picking up people and charging them with seditious uh, uh, literature. It didn't hold up in court eventually, but they did it because they knew that there were, you know, all these laws and more in the books and they could always find something like that. And the first instinct of the police and of district attorneys is to use the, you know, the maximal hammer, the biggest hammer uh, they have at the time. So I think that this discussion about fighting repression 
but also the role of repression and diverting movements from uh, targeting, uh, you know, the, the real ruling uh, uh, classes needs to become much more important. And we need to be aware of the need to build infrastructures. And for me, there are two infrastructures that are key here. Yeah, I'm talking about movement infrastructure. The first is just this, a defensive apparatus. The second, far more important, is the movement needs to grow through creating niches and uh, survival niches for young, radical, poor people, working class people. Now, some people would scoff at, at the majority composition of the left or what they believe uh, is the left today, too many graduate students and so on. And of course, there's far more to it than, than that. You know, what I've seen here in Southern California are first generation immigrant kids go to college bearing all the sacrifices that their parents have made, all the expectations only to find themselves ending up in the contingent uh, economy, unable to accomplish any of that. So this downwardly mobile millennial uh, 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 group it is given a new material basis to uh, uh, people's politics. But we know that we have to build a movement that looks more like the young American working class of today. And to do that, we have to create an infrastructure that gives people opportunities and survival resources, jobs and income. Uh, the old days of building some political tendency just out of grad school and a huge dollop of uh, arcane ideology, uh, that doesn't work today. We need to nurture class fighters and we need to nurture resistance in the communities that are most ready and able to fight. Word. I could not agree more. Um, and I hate to move on to talking about the election now after we were going to such an inspiring place, but- uh, <laughs> Sorry, I should have saved that for last. Feel like we have to talk about it a little bit. Uh, so, and then we'll come, we'll circle back, don't worry. So, okay, um, we all really liked your uh, New Left Review piece on the most recent election and the political economy, the various phenomenon. You really do a good job explaining like what the fuck is going on because I feel like it's very confusing to a lot of people. Um, and you spent some time debunking the idea that it's the white working class that forms the majority of Trump's base. And you chart out the influence of exurbs uh, which can be defined as rural areas that the wealthy have been migrating to, uh, as well as new power centers like Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, but you also chart the influence of Trump's economic message and the Democrats' lack of one on working class swing voters who are concerned primarily with jobs and the economy. And now these people are not part of the hardcore base, but they might have voted for Obama in 2012, swing back and forth. A lot of people talk about the Rust Belt a lot. Um, so, so what role did the working class swing voters play in the Trump phenomenon and perhaps in, in the Democrats 
tepid 2020 performance? And how should the progressive movement approach these folks going forward um, in, for instance, deindustrialized places like the Rust Belt? And then I have in parentheses here, would Bernie have won? Well, Bernie would have done infinitely better than Clinton and now Biden in the American heartland because he was able to answer the question that, that none of them was ever able to answer. You're sitting around your dinner table with your partner in Dubuque, Iowa, you know, a tough medium-sized, small, medium-sized industrial city, or you're in Erie, Pennsylvania, where the only Rust Belt city that survived the original onslaught of capital flight and, and plant closure. It all happened there more recently. It's been devastating. And you're sitting around your table, and here's a candidate, a Democrat, and you have one great overriding concern. You're going to say to them, what are you going to do to increase job opportunity and economic security? Okay, right here in Dubuque group, Erie or Canton, Ohio, or, uh, you know, Duluth. No Democrat, apart from Bernie Sanders, has an answer to that. Biden would say, well, we're going to have, uh, <clears throat> we're not going to do a Green New Deal. That's far too radical. Can't we Let's skip that? But what we're going to do is create these millions of new energy jobs. Yeah, you're been laid off from um, the local supermarket, which has had to close down, or, or the uh, locomotive plant, you can imagine yourself installing uh, solar panels in the middle of the desert, or even making them, uh, which has become highly automated. Of course not. So it's not a real answer. It's not a serious answer to that. And in Clinton's case, she arrogantly just, you know, so, so what? We're going to win the White House wives in suburbia, okay? And we'll get a majority. Uh, I'm not even going to visit any of these uh, uh, places. Now, after the first election in 2016, I looked at, um, I think it was 17 or 18, industrial counties in the in the Midwest and Great Lakes and uh, where the vote had switched from Obama uh, to Trump in 2016. And I went back and I read the local press for the last couple of years in these places. All of them had had recent significant job losses, plant closure on a range that went from serious to catastrophic. And Democrats did nothing, uh, nothing to, to say. Did they have anything to say this time around? Not really. They had four years to understand the significance. Of, they had four years to understand what happened in 2016. Trump won the election above all because he gave the Democrat, the Republican platform to the Christian conservatives who in the larger part were, had supported Ted Cruz. 
and they came on board and he was able to win not all, but the larger share of the Romney vote. The number of Democratic blue collar workers who shifted support to Trump was relatively small, but it was strategically located. And that's how, of course, he lost to uh, Pennsylvania and uh, 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 Wisconsin and in, in Michigan. The results seem to show that with a few exceptions where Biden made all out efforts like in his so-called hometown in Scranton, Pennsylvania, these people did not come back to the Democratic Party. Or if they did, new voters, new Trump voters uh, appeared out of the woodwork. The actual change in the voting percentages, and I looked at each one of these counties, was very, very slight. And I also looked at the total vote this year. Now, all polls show have shown that Trump consistently has support from 40 to 42 percent of people polled or surveyed. And this has been true from day one of the administration to the election eve. So if you take the 73 million or 74 million Trump voters, okay, and you deduct from that the 40% of the overall vote, of the overall Republican vote that can be attributed to the Trump hardcore, it still leaves you with like 17 million people. Who are these people? These you might call the situational Trump voters. And I argue that in large part, they were probably people who were so vulnerable to further closings in the economy that they had to be more concerned about income than disease. They had to be people who had seen in October uh, a steady increase in jobs and reco recovery, which led them to Trump. I'm not uh, devaluating the importance of racism and other factors, but it's always the dinner bucket that's the first and most important uh, criteria in election. And Biden failed on this. And of course he did make some promises we hope that he'll keep in part in terms of being more, uh, more pro-union. But in terms of the old industrial unions, this was the most inactive election I've ever seen. Okay. You know, where did you see Trump go? Or the old, uh, any of the old guard representing industrial unions? Many of them hid under their beds. Or they did, you know, they, they brought out people, but because the Democrats accepted uh, social distancing and quarantines, uh, they tended to stay home and not walk precincts like they normally do. Well, the mega churches, which are the kind of equivalent rank and file army of the Republican Party, were, you know, were all over the place. So the Democrats, without any real jobs or reindustrialization uh, strategy 
or platform that makes sense to people over their dinner tables, faced with their bills and the new precariousness of uh, employment, had nothing to say. Bernie did, but he, uh, he also had a lack of specificity. When you're in West Virginia, or he overwhelmingly won the, the Democratic primary, people want to hear what you're going to do about the problem of dying industries in the Southern Mountains or in the petrochemical corridor of the Kanawha Valley. People everywhere want to talk about regional and lo uh, local conditions. The campaign should have been much more specific and focused on this, brought in more uh, ideas. Instead, it stayed at the level of generality, a very progressive generality. But the truth is that this economy, this private economy, cannot create jobs. Jobs that created and, and in turn generated this facade of the, you know, the greatest boom, lowest unemployment are, of course, from the vast part, not good jobs at all. And this is where the, the left, and particularly the far left, needs to be adamant and, and ruthless in truth-telling and objectivity that there is not going to be any new golden era of, of, of capital in your lifetimes. Okay. Is not, uh, and that's true globally as well as it is uh, nationally in this country. This is a crisis from which will not emerge by uh, the genius of entrepreneurship. It is disaster in which the future is mired by the inability because it's not a direct interest or profitable opportunity to create decent jobs again. Those jobs have to be created in the form of public employment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the Bernie campaign and his answers to these questions, because um, it, like there was this idea, I think, in certain circles, right, like maybe the DSA for Bernie types, democratic socialists, uh, I don't know, all you need to do in order to win uh, an electoral campaign in this country is to run on those meat and potatoes issues, right? Um, but unfortunately, we saw Bernie doing that um, and he lost, he lost the primary. And it's, it's depressing because in a lot of uh, Super Tuesday exit polls, we saw that voters were more, were, were, were in favor of Medicare for all or even socialism in general, um, but they voted for Biden anyway. Um, and a lot of them cited the need to beat Trump as their number one concern. So what's going on here? Is this an example of um, depoliticization, the kind of narrowing of, of political horizons and the lack of a belief that a better world is possible through, through politics? Uh, is it something else? Is there any hope of overcoming it down the line? And I guess the real question embedded in this question is are electoral campaigns like that of Bernie Sanders, um, something that the anti-capitalist left should be engaging with at this juncture in the way that we have been? Well, I think we should be engaging with it. 
I mean, Bernie Sanders personally has been absolutely extraordinary <clears throat> in convincing millions of Americans that socioeconomic rights are as fundamental to human rights as rights to free speech and so on. And sure, vote for progressives. The mistake is to make that the, you know, the, the major aim, the strategy, the movement. That shouldn't be the case at all. The case should be building fights in the workplace, in the community, national campaigns uh, about healthcare and women's rights, international solidarity campaigns, which, by the way, was hardly discussed at all. Uh, another criticism of the Sanders campaign. Yeah, I mean, he was critical of, of Israel, but by and large, issues, the great international issues of, of forced immigra immigration, of global poverty, of the lack of health protection or opportunities to adjust to climate change in poor countries, They're never part of the discussion. The generation I grew up in and the generation that followed like in the 80s with the Central American Solidarity Movement. Um, tremendous mistakes and errors. But internationalism was always at the forefront. It was always a, it was always a distinguishing characteristic. So another thing that has to be part of the criterion for a new left of the left must be internationalism particularly as it has a mass base in America's immigrant communities for whom these issues are not abstract. They're family issues. You know, they could not be more immediate <clears throat> if you're a Somali working in a meatpacking plant in North Dakota or a Guatemalan, a first-generation Guatemalan kid in, in uh, the San Fernando, uh, you know, Valley. This is different from uh, previous years because there's such a large base of potential support uh, for international struggles and for creating, recreating a, a culture of internationalism on the left. But at the end of the day, can the Democratic party be transformed. DSA, of course, is an outgrowth of the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. And its core politics, its raison d'etre, was the idea that unions and civil rights groups could win and take power in the Democratic Party, become a permanent majority in the party. And of course, it didn't happen. I don't believe it can happen. The Democratic Party cannot be won from within or through the incremental process of elections. Progressive candidates, of course, important. They mobilize people, they give great support to local struggles. But we have to reject the fantasy that capturing the party itself is, is a possibility. Now, in the case of Sanders' campaign, it wasn't people were depoliticized. Listen, 
I'm gonna have to stop. I'm just gonna get hoarse and that's that's totally fine. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, this has been a very illuminating conversation. And I hope that everyone uh, takes from it not uh, not just a not just the sense that everything's really fucked up and that we uh, <laughs> the the world is falling apart, but that there is still there's something we can do about it, and it's not gonna be easy. And we definitely have our work cut out for us, but um, we need to be creating these working class institutions, these institutions of you know building some kind of counterpower, giving young radicalized people a place to go and sustaining the kind of activity that we're going to need to continue building if we ever want to exit this insane capitalist <laughs> system. So um, thank you again um, for joining us. And um, yes, hopefully 2021 will be <laughs> somewhat better. Yeah, it's been a real honor. Thank you. Okay, take care now. They say she died one winter When there came a killing frost And the pony she named Wildfire Busted down its stall In a blizzard he was lost